Hey, Mama. I know getting meals on the table for your family can feel tough, especially finding weeknight-friendly meals that everyone in the family will love. There's a good chance it's why you're here, at least I hope so. Helping moms take the stress out of feeding their family is my biggest passion. It's why I share with you here, and it's why I created the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. If you've ever wished this podcast came with a weekly done-for-you dinner plan with a shopping list and meal prep tips, or maybe a recipe library with over 200 family-friendly recipes, cooking tips, how-tos, and hacks, well, it does, and it's all in the Healthy Mama Cooking Club over on Patreon. Starting at just $3 a month for access to our 200-plus recipe vault with printable PDF recipes, or $5 a month for weekly done-for-you dinner plans, plus the recipe vault and bonus podcasts every month, the Healthy Mama Cooking Club is the dinnertime solution you're looking for. Head to patreon.com slash healthymamachris or click the link in the show notes to try it out for a week free and join over 130 other busy mamas making weeknight meals work with the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. I can't wait to see you in there. All right, let's get on with the episode. So what I help my clients understand is, you know, yes, we need to temporarily reduce the intake of these food, but these are options that you can have. And there's hundreds and hundreds of foods that people can replace FODMAPs with. And it's all about finding that balance in your diet. So you're getting enough nutrition at the same time, um, using the low FODMAP diet to reduce your symptoms. Living a healthy, balanced life as a mom can sometimes feel impossible. With tiny mouths to feed, butts to wipe, and so many things vying for our attention, it can be easy to feel like we're in an on-again, off-again relationship with healthy living. But it doesn't have to feel this way. I believe every mom is a super mom, and you deserve to feel like one too, and you don't have to go on another diet to do it. Join me, Kristen Dovniak, holistic nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor for conversations on what it means to live a healthy, balanced life. I want to help you uncomplicate eating, improve your relationship with food, and live like the supermama I know you are. Hey friends, welcome back to the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. I'm Kristen Dovniak, holistic health coach, certified intuitive eating counselor, and your host of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. For the last couple of weeks, we have been talking all about digestive health. This is one of those topics that I get asked about quite a bit over on Instagram and via email by women who are struggling with their own digestion, often coming from a place of also wanting to find freedom with food and feel really good in their bodies. And I think a lot of women feel very alone in the struggle of trying to heal their bodies and feel good physically, um, but also not feel trapped by needing to eat a certain way because they have digestive issues. So I shared my own digestive story um, a couple weeks ago, and then I had Katherine Herbison come on, and we shared about having digestive struggles from the lens of intuitive eating and food freedom. And I really wanted to get an expert on to share some really practical solutions if you are struggling with digestive issues. Specifically, IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, which is what I've struggled with for about the last two decades, it can be really, it can feel really isolating. It can be really hard to navigate IBS without just removing a whole bunch of foods from our diet. So I wanted somebody to come on who has a ton of practical real life experience in helping women in this way with figuring out what works for them when it comes to gut health and IBS, learning how to navigate if you are experiencing digestive issues. Maybe this is the first time you've ever experienced them. Maybe you're experiencing a flare up and how to approach managing digestive health in a way that is really balanced. So we talk about what IBS is. We talk about why IBS isn't all about the food that we eat, and oftentimes it's not even about the food that we think it is. We talk about the low FODMAP diet, which is a really balanced and research-proven approach to managing digestive health symptoms. We talk about a lot of the myths surrounding gut health and 
healing our guts and IBS as well as FODMAPs. We talk about how to bring more fun and joy into our eating, even if we are approaching our gut health with something like the low FODMAP diet, how we can still bring joy and bring flavor and how important it is to have that as a part of our lives as we are healing our guts. We even talk about kids and what to do if our kiddos are experiencing some gut health issues, what is normal, what might not be. We talk best practices for gut health. So maybe you might not be struggling specifically with IBS right now, but maybe you've been struggling with bloating or other digestive health issues. We talk about some of the things that you can do practically to help your own gut health now and in the future for yourself and your kiddos. And we really talk about finding balance in it all. That, you know, having IBS doesn't need to be something that is a life sentence. You can find relief from IBS and it doesn't have to be so hard or so complicated. So we talk about the importance of getting professional help and how you can work with your practitioner to find a balance when it comes to your gut health and living a full life despite maybe having some gut issues. And I know I've experienced that myself. So I am so excited to introduce you to Charlene Oy. Charlene is an accredited practicing dietitian with over 10 years of experience. She specializes in helping women with digestive issues, specifically irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Charlene is a Monash-trained FODMAP dietitian and has helped over 500 people around the world find relief from frustrating and embarrassing gut problems. Charlene is on a mission to end the stigma and normalize poop talk. When she's not working with clients, Charlene is a dietitian business coach, a wife, and a mommy to a cheeky three-year-old. She lives in Perth, Western Australia, and just like many dietitians, she's a foodie at heart. Okay, friends, I am so ready to dive into this conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Charlene. Hi, Charlene. Welcome to the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much, Kristen, for inviting me on the show. I'm super excited to be here as well. Thank you. Absolutely. And can I just say, I could listen to your accent all day long. <laughs> I love your accent. <laughs> Thank you. I love your accent too. Same here. <laughs> well, see, I think mine is just so boring, but um, I think yours is beautiful. So no, I'm just going to have so Thank much you. fun listening to you, but I know you have some really, really <laughs> awesome information to share with us when it comes to digestive health as well. So I love to start with just a really short icebreaker. Um, so what do you drink first thing in the morning when you wake up? I've got my peppermint tea here to start me with the day and to end me with the day as well. So I love my peppermint tea. Mm, peppermint tea is so good. And a little nod to gut health there too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are good for gut health. And I was going to talk about this later on in the show as well. <laughs> awesome. So I would love if you would just share with my listeners what got you into the field of nutrition and specifically helping clients with IBS and digestive health issues. That's a great question. I don't know where to get started. Well, I think my interest in nutrition started, I was inspired by my brother, essentially. So my brother suffered with a condition called muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. So he was diagnosed when he was about five and I watched him throughout the whole journey of um, going through the different um, process of the condition and very young, very early on, I wanted to do something and get into a profession that would help him. And so, you know, I thought about being a pediatrician, a doctor and that kind of thing. But as I grew older, I started becoming more interested in nutrition because he was tube fed for a long period of his life. Mm -hmm. So that really inspired me to learn more about the role of nutrition, how it can help to slow down the progression of the condition that he's got. And when I became, when I got to around 13, 14 years old, that's when I started having digestive issues myself. Mm. So then I, you know, looked more into it and I studied nutrition and dietetics at university. And when I got to around about, when I had my daughter, that was about five years ago. And that's when I started getting um, worse, um, my symptoms worsening. And I decided to go into the specialty area of IBS to learn more about what I can do for myself and to better help people with that as well. So it's evolved over time. I never really knew that I wanted to get into nutrition and dietetics, but my journey and what's been happening so far has really inspired that. 
Oh, I love that. I think that your personal connection with nutrition from your brother to your own struggles is so powerful. And I think that that is Mm. what fuels most of us in a lot of what we're so passionate about is, okay, I wanted to help someone close to me or I wanted to help myself. And now I'm helping other people with that. So I'm so grateful that you're doing this work. Thank you. (laughs) So I would love to jump right in with the poop talk. (laughs) So (laughs) I've at this point, shared my own digestive journey, but for the listener who's new, I've struggled with IBS myself for a number of years, pretty close to two decades, and it has been quite the journey to finding um, what I would call my balance, the balance I'm in today. I still have you know, flare-ups from time to time, but I know what to do to manage my digestive health um, way better than I did two decades ago. And like we talked about before we hopped on live, it's something that really isn't talked about enough. And... As you point out in your bio, it can be really embarrassing. And it's really important to break the stigma of digestive problems being embarrassing because they are really common. So for the listener who doesn't know what IBS is specifically, could you kind of explain what it means, maybe some of the symptoms um, and what is normal versus what would be a reason for somebody to seek out some professional help? Sure. So IBS stands for irritable bowel syndrome, and essentially it's an irritable gut, um, to put it simply. And it's a collection of symptoms where it um, starts from the gut. So typical symptoms for IBS would include things like bloating, abdominal cramps, diarrhea or constipation and these are it needs to be ongoing for a period of time for it to be properly diagnosed as IBS and I guess IBS it's really common as well it's not something that a lot of people talk about but in actual fact one in five people around the world has got IBS so you know if you start talking to someone about it it's more than likely they'll say something like oh you know I've got something similar like that as well Because the condition is quite complex, it's really hard, I suppose, for someone to get diagnosed immediately. So it's a series of process of steps. You know, if someone were to have irritable bowel symptoms, they will need to go to their doctor and talk about the symptoms. And then they need to go through a series of tests to be diagnosed. At present, there isn't, um, there is one test in the US called IBS Smart, but there isn't um, a test that's available all around the world right now to diagnose someone with IBS. It's through a process of exclusion by doing all the other tests like I talked about earlier. So it's really about, you know, going to your doctor, getting tested and confirming the diagnosis so you can get it managed properly. Um, And the other thing is, you know, with the symptoms, it needs to be frequent enough for it to be considered an issue. So if you only get the occasional constipation here and there or that bloating here and there after eating it's not really considered IBS it needs to be so there's a criteria that doctors use it's called the Rome criteria and so the symptoms needs to be happening at least three times a week for a period of more than three months and that's then your doctor would use a series of other questions to diagnose you with that. So I suppose a lot of people would think, you know, do I have IBS? So there's a series of questions I want your listeners to be asking themselves and looking at. So first thing is how frequently are the symptoms happening? How severe it is? And is there a pattern to it? Is there something else that's more sinister that we need to look at? So some of the common red flags that we talk about will be things like if you've got blood in your stools or if you experienced unintentional weight loss, or if you're having night sweats or um, um, other problems like fever or low iron levels, they do need to seek more immediate medical advice and find out if there's something else happening because the symptoms of IBS can be very similar to some other gastrointestinal conditions like Crohn's disease, celiac disease. So we do want to make sure that we're getting properly diagnosed before we go off and change our diet. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for clearing those things up because I think it can be really easy to also hear the stat. I didn't even realize that one in five people has IBS, which is crazy. And another reason why we need to break the stigma and talk about it so more people can get help. Um, but you know, it can be easy for somebody to think like, oh, I have constipation sometimes or I have diarrhea sometimes. Do I have IBS? But knowing that, you know, that, that consistent, how often is it happening? Is it happening on a frequent basis? I know for me, it was something that started as occasional. 
And then it started to ramp up and be almost debilitating in my life. Like, you know, there were certain times where I wouldn't want to go out because I, you know, my IBS had flared up and I didn't want to be too far from a bathroom and things like that. Mm. Um, and that's just the reality of it. And that was at the point where I was like, okay, I need to go get tested. And the testing, you know, it wasn't fun, but it was really helpful to hear that, yep, there's definitely something going on. And you were, and it was a little frustrating at the time too. And we'll talk a little bit more about treatments um, because they basically were like, yeah, you are very irritated. You're inflamed. And I was like, God's very irritated. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I was like, I know, like, I know, but is there anything else you can do? And they're like, well, sort of. And so that's where, you know, we'll go into, into things that you can do. Um, so it, it's, it can be frustrating, but it can be so helpful to have a diagnosis and to go, okay, now I can start to take steps forward in taking back my health from there. Um, but also not to scare the listener who might have the occasional gut issue that they, that <laughs> they have IBS. <laughs> And I wanted to clarify as well, you know, as women, sometimes when, when we're getting our PMS symptoms, I suppose, in the days leading up to a period, we might have the occasional loose stools or some people might get more bloated or constipated as a result of that hormonal fluctuation. And I want your listeners to know that that can be common amongst women as well. So it's important to recognize when something feels a little bit out of whack and it's consistently happening, then we need to go and seek medical advice. And, you know, if in doubt, it's really important to talk to your doctor anyway, so they can run the test that they need to and give you that peace of mind if it's nothing serious or if it's IBS. And with IBS, there's so many different, well, I suppose it ranges in that spectrum of mild to severe. And for some people, you know, with very mild symptoms, they can easily manage that just by making a few dietary and lifestyle changes. But then I do work with clients on the other end of the spectrum as well, where the symptoms are so severe and it's debilitating like what you said and they struggle to go to work or even to get out of bed so you know when you're you don't want to I suppose what I'm trying to say is you don't want to leave it till too late Mm -hmm. um and you know seek help if you need to early on Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I love, you know, in going through your bio and and your website, I love that your mission is to help people to start seeking help and take the control back so that they can live a healthier, happier life and allow eating to become fun again, which is a huge part of my mission as well. So if someone is listening and they are struggling with these digestive issues that feels chronic and they're feeling frustrated, where do you recommend she starts? Yeah. The first place is always to talk to your doctor because A, you want to make sure that what you have is um, properly diagnosed. So you're not trying to walk around and trying to pull anything out of the dark. You want to make sure that you have a proper diagnosis. Then you can have a plan in place that you put together with your doctor, whether it's a referral to a specialist like a gastroenterologist or to a gynecologist for some women as well, if they've got something similar to PCOS or endometriosis, because some of the symptoms can overlap and some doctors just want to send them to the right specialist to get it ruled out. So that's really important. So first up, talk to your doctor because they're going to be able to direct you to the right people. And the second thing that's really important is to keep a food diary with recording your symptoms, the food that you eat, your bowel habits, and also thinking about your stress level. So one of the things I like to get my clients to think about is that IBS is not just triggered by food. It's a multifactorial condition that goes beyond what we eat. We look at our lifestyle, our stress levels, physical activity levels, and all of that because it can just all overlap. And it's really important to try and see by doing the food journal if there's a trend or some sort of uh, relationship between stress levels and your symptoms. And once you've got that awareness, it's so much easier to then go ahead and manage that. Yeah, and the third thing that we I would so suggest is not to cut out foods randomly because a lot of people, it's so easy to think, oh yeah, I've just eaten the meal and then I have these symptoms and must be that meal that I just ate. And we go back and blame and overanalyze, I suppose, and blame what's in that meal. But it's not always that straightforward as well because it could be an accumulation of what you've eaten throughout the day, but we just end up blaming the last food that we've had. So you really do need to get some more support working with a dietitian who specializes in that area so we can 
can look into your diet a little bit more to help give someone the guidance of what they need to cut out to work out what's working and what can they replace it with so we're not ending up with lots of nutritional gaps in the diet. Yes. I'm so glad you pointed that out too. I think that's one of those things that's really misunderstood about mm. IBS and, and just digestive issues. Um, and it was definitely something that I didn't understand in the beginning either. I was definitely that person who was just blaming the last thing I ate. Mm. And I was definitely mm. eating so few foods because I was so fearful of foods that food was going to cause my symptoms. And I think if I had gotten help just a little bit sooner, I had gotten the test done and they had given me a little bit of advice. Um, but this was even like very, very early on. I know we're going to talk about FODMAPs in a little bit, but very early on in the FODMAP research and my gastroenterologist didn't have a lot of answers for me. So I kind of took a lot of it into my own hands and I was like, well, anything that made me feel sick. So I thought... I just took out. And then I was down to eating so few foods. And I have a history of disordered eating, and that certainly didn't help with that either. And this was kind of past my initial um, struggle with disordered eating, but it, it definitely brought back a lot of that fear and um, that struggle with food. So working with somebody who can help you pinpoint what if is actually triggering things, if it is food, if it is stress, if it is, you know, a combination of all of these things I think can be Absolutely. so powerful. So what I would love to have you share a little bit more about, and you already kind of started talking a little bit about this, were maybe some common myths about how to manage IBS. So what are some of the most common things you hear and why are they myths around kind of solving IBS? Yeah, I love this question because I get this all the time and I laugh about them sometimes and make it, I suppose, my life mission as a dietitian to try and debunk this myth and help more people understand the science behind it all. But one of the biggest one that I often get is that IBS, it's all in your head and it's not real. It's a made up condition. It's as much as it frustrates me that people don't understand, but it's super um, important for everyone to recognize that, you know, the pain, the bloating, those changes in bowel movements and all the embarrassing things that comes from that can really impact on someone's quality of life. So at the end of the day, it's really not in your head. You know, it's a really real condition with real symptoms, but also real solutions that people can seek help for and implement in their lives. Yeah, and the second thing is, I suppose, when people look at diet and what they can change is that a gluten-free and dairy-free diet is the way to go. Well, nowadays, there's lots of different diets like the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet, and that would help with IBS. And because all our bodies are very different and IBS looks so different on everyone. So it's really important for you and everyone else to recognize that what may work for you is not going to work for the next person. So it's so important to work with a dietitian to help identify what is it that's triggering your symptoms instead of cutting out random foods on your own and trying to you know find every single magical cures out there or diets that promise that cure from IBS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are so individual and I talk about this all the time when I talk about health, that our bodies are so unique and what works for one person might not work for another in every area, but it's so, so true when it comes to digestive mm -hmm. health. And I know in different flare-ups that I've had of IBS, different things have worked at different times to, to help my symptoms. And I think that's important for, you know, the listener who might be frustrated to know too, you know, sometimes it's going to work one time and it's not going to work another, and you might need a little bit more support in this area or that area. Um, so I would love to just have you explain a little bit more about one of the, and I would say this is even, you know, newer in the last 10 years or so, um, but really powerful dietary changes that um, you could make, especially when you're working with a professional, because it can be, it can be hard to implement on your own um, for IBS. And that is the low FODMAP diet. So can you share how you discovered the low FODMAP diet, kind of what it is briefly? I know that, you know, there's, um, there's some nuances to it and who it's right for. 
Absolutely. So the low FODMAP diet, like you said, have been around, it hasn't been around for that long. It's probably around about just over 10 years, but it's only become more popular and more well-known over the last five to eight years. So more and more doctors and gastroenterologists are learning about it and recommending that to clients. So the low FODMAP diet is different to the gluten-free or dairy-free diet. Um, and it's one of the most effective way of managing IBS and research has shown that it helps up to 75% of people with IBS. And in saying that though, it's not a diet that I would recommend for everyone listening with IBS. You really need to find what's the best approach to it because there's a more liberal approach to it and then there's a strict approach to the low FODMAP diet as well. So it. It's FODMAPs are essentially an acronym and it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols. So it's a mouthful, but essentially it refers to a group of carbohydrates that are easily fermented in our gut and it then creates a lot of problems for a certain group of people, especially people with IBS, and causes issues like bloating, diarrhea cramps and constipation. So it really is effective, but it needs to be applied in the right way for the right group of people. The low FODMAP diet is um, divided into three phases. So the first phase is about removing or reducing the amount of FODMAPs you have in the diet. So it's a low FODMAP diet. And what people need to understand is that it's not a no FODMAP diet. So you're still allowed to have some FODMAPs and it's all about the portion sizes and reducing the intake of that. So the next stage is the challenge phase and it's about bringing those FODMAPs back into your diet and working out which particular group is a problem for you. And then once you've done that, we put all the pieces of the puzzle together from the challenge phase and then bring that back into your diet in the personalization phase. What I often see people, um, one common pitfall, I suppose, is that people often get better in the first phase, which is the elimination phase, and then they just stay there for the rest of their life. But it's really important to recognize that the diet's only meant to be undertaken for a really short period of time. So it's around two to six weeks, and I generally recommend for my clients to follow that for around four weeks, give or take. And once someone feels better, it's then important to move on to the next phase and consider bringing the FODMAPs back to identify which ones are triggered for you. So essentially you're putting on your detective hat and trying to work out which ones are triggered for you. And for the ones that don't create problems for you, it's important to then introduce them back into your diet for the long term. One of the things that is really important to recognize is that FODMAPs are, a lot of them are high fiber foods and they're really important for our gut health as well. So it helps to, um, to encourage the growth of good bacteria. So we need to also continue to include some of them long-term. And that's why I stressed early on is that it's not a no FODMAP diet. We need to include some of them in our diet. Yeah, I'm really glad that you pointed that out to you. I think it is really easy for someone who is really wanting to see those digestive health results right away. And especially if they see that relief very soon, you know, after removing or lowering their FODMAPs, um, that they're going to want to stay on it forever or that they're just going to want to remove them entirely and maybe have that fear in putting them back in. But I really like that you pointed out that these are healthful foods that our bodies can use. Um, it's just about kind of giving your body, in my head, it, it's sort of like giving your body that bit of a break from these foods, allowing your body to heal, and then identifying what is actually causing the issue, not just you know blindly eliminating all of them, but going, okay, what is actually gonna help here? And then, and then moving on from there. So I'm curious, so after, you know, in this challenge phase, if you do identify, um, if you're someone who is on the low FODMAP diet for a period of time trying to heal these digestive issues, and you notice that one area of FODMAPs, um, you know, maybe it's monosaccharides, <laughs> one area is causing you distress, what would you then do? So would you keep those out for a period of time? Would you then challenge them back in in the future? How does that, how does that phase kind of work? 
Yeah. So with that, it's really important to recognize how much can you safely have before it starts to trigger issues for you. And for a lot of my clients, we work through the challenge phase in a dose dependent way. So for example, when we look at the wheat challenge, we start at a small dose and then we'll increase it to a moderate dose and then up to a large dose. So we're trying to figure out at what point they start having symptoms and then we'll then keep under that threshold, I suppose, going forward. I always like to encourage my clients to find that balance because once you find out what you can have, depending on how mild or severe the symptoms are, it gives them that knowledge and that awareness of how much their body can tolerate. So when they do go out for meals and things, if they do decide to have a little bit of wheat, they know how much they can have before they have to run to the bathroom. And so they obviously wouldn't want to do that when they're eating out. So we try and keep under that in that safe quantity. Mm, I love that. It's such a balanced approach and so much more freeing than just going, oh, I can't have these things for the rest of my life. It's like, okay, I can have them, but I can only have up to a certain amount. And I know that's my story with, uh, there's a couple foods that still trigger, you know, my symptoms if I have them in too large amounts. And sometimes it's over a period of like a week. If I have too much Mm -hmm. of one type of food over a week, it's like all of a sudden I'm noticing some symptoms popping back up and I have to kind of think back and go, cause I don't, I don't do food journaling anymore because I am at a good place, but I have to think back and go, Hmm, maybe, maybe I kind of, you know, had a little bit too much of this type of food. I don't want to say what mm-hmm. type of food just because I don't want anyone to think that they need to they need to, you know, eliminate a certain type of food or anything like that. And I just sort of have to decide how much might be good for my body the next week. And maybe I just reduce the amount of that food a little bit the next week and it's really just from a place of gentleness and self-care, not a place of oh, I can't have this food anymore because it caused some symptoms. It's from this place of okay, my gut needs a little bit of a break. And then I know that I can have a little bit more once, you know, I'm starting to feel better. So I find mm-hmm. that approach of just finding your threshold and finding your personal tolerance so much more freeing than a lot of what I learned in the very beginning of my IBS when I was on this journey of searching for different solutions, hearing a lot of people say, well, then you, just, you can never eat say gluten or dairy forever because it's just going to trigger your gut issues. So this is a much, much more balanced and and freeing approach, I think. That's right. And it's not an all or nothing approach. I love that mindset that you've got, that you just got to find that balance of what your body can manage. And then when your body is trying to say to you, oh, hang on, you know, we've got too much of certain something, let's take a break, give it a rest, and then we can come back to this. Because it's all about um, being more aware of our body and how it's making us feel. And I'm all for, you know, for women especially, that we have a really good relationship with food. Because a lot of us grow up, you know, with body issues or we we worry about eating and count calories and all of that sort of thing and that can really skew our relationship with food and how we view ourselves how we look at ourselves in the mirror and what we think about it and at the end of the day you know with food it's such a big part of life and we want to be able to enjoy life there's so much meaning around food and so you know the less we can become more critical and restrictive, the better it is for our relationship with food as well. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it's such an important point. Yeah, absolutely. I am 100% with you on that. Finding that balance in my own life with my IBS has definitely has definitely helped my relationship with food, which has been its own journey, but that is, has definitely been a really powerful part. So I'm curious, I know you mentioned wheat as one of those FODMAP foods. Could you kind of share with us a little bit more about what type of foods are high FODMAP foods if someone is, you know, exploring the low FODMAP diet? Mm. So FODMAPs are essentially fermentable carbohydrates. So it's found in carbohydrate foods. So you're not going to find FODMAPs in protein-based foods like eggs or chicken or even fats like oils as well. So it's essentially in carbohydrate foods. It's in things like wheat, so bread and pasta. It's in milk, dairy products like uh, lactose-containing milk or yogurts and ice cream. It's in certain vegetables like garlic onion it's in certain fruits like apples and pears and stone fruits like you know peaches that sort of thing and a mangoes as well so it's in a lot of foods and I can completely understand when I see clients coming to me for the first time and feeling super overwhelmed because they've just been given a long list of food or 
on the other hand, you know, a really brief list of foods to avoid and they have no idea what they can have because there's so many things of what they can't have. So what I help my clients understand is, you know, yes, we need to temporarily reduce the intake of these food, but these are options that you can have. And there's hundreds and hundreds of foods that people can replace FODMAPs with. And it's all about finding that balance in your diet. So you're getting enough nutrition at the same time, um, using the low FODMAP diet to reduce your symptoms. Mm, Yeah. Thank you for for clarifying that. I think on the same lines as it being freeing to, you know, learn your own personal tolerance and things like that. I think it was also freeing for me to learn that foods that seem very innocuous, like pears have always upset my digestive system. And that's something that, you know, I can have a few slices of pears on a salad and there is nothing wrong with pears. They're such a nutrient dense fiber rich. Absolutely. They're great. And so the fact that every time I ate pears, I would end up with a super bloated belly and I would have all of these digestive issues was so like, it didn't make any sense to me. And it was a while before I, I was making the connection that that was actually what was causing those issues. But now I know that, you know, I can have a little bit of that. Um, but it did take actually learning about what foods had FODMAPs in them. And that, you know, even though a lot of these foods are really helpful, they're good for us, they might be giving us issues. And in the short term, it might be something that we, we need to address. Yeah, that's right. And I wanted to also say, you know, just like you, I went through a process of trying to figure out what was going wrong for me as well with food. And luckily for myself, because I have the nutrition knowledge, but there was still a lot of learning for me to do as a dietitian when it came to the low FODMAP diet, because it's such a specialized area of dietetics. Um, but the funny thing is I wanted to say, because I'm, uh, I come from Malaysia, so I've got an Asian heritage and back home, you know, my mom would use lots of garlic and onion in her cooking and would always sit there wondering, this was, you know, in the last few years when I go back for holidays, why I would be feeling bloated after eating her meals and even a lot of, takeouts as well and so it just made me wonder and over the years I've been able to connect the dots and then finally figure out what was upsetting me and you know the sad thing is for a lot of people finding out that garlic and onion is in so many foods um, and that's why you know with what I do with a lot of my clients we teach them about what they can replace it with to get the flavors and I think that's the biggest shock for a lot of people not being able to have garlic and onion as part of the low FODMAP diet is that the lack of flavor what can we do to make the meals more flavorsome Mm. Mm -hmm. I know one of the best things that I learned when um, the last flare-up that I went through with my IBS was pretty bad it was a few months ago and it was the first flare-up I'd had in about five years and it was definitely stemmed from some stress that I had going on in my life and going low FODMAP for a period of time was really, really helpful in helping my gut go back into balance. And as I'm doing more research into this, I discovered that you can use garlic oil. You just can't use garlic and being a total foodie. I have a culinary background. I was like, (laughs) yes, I can still have some garlic. It's a lifesaver, isn't it? (laughs) And here in Australia and some parts of the world, like in the UK and New Zealand as well, there's a new product from um, Free Fod and it's a garlic and onion replacer. So it's a powdered version of um, the garlic oil. And um, yeah, it's beautiful. And a lot of people are loving being able to get those flavors back in the meal. It's just, you know, about being more creative. And I think in the next few years, more food manufacturers are just going to jump on board because there's so much more awareness about the low FODMAP diet now. So everyone's thinking about what they can do to cater for this portion of the market. And like I said, one in five people with IBS. So that's definitely quite a significant number to cater for. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad that you brought up, like, we still want to have fun and enjoyment in our foods because food is such a big part of our life. We want to be enjoying it. So finding those alternatives is really big. I know in the U.S., we have a company called Fadi Foods. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's if it's outside of the U.S., but um, I've used a couple of their spice blends, and they have a garlic oil as well and some condiments that are low FODMAP. So that's a really great option. You can find, I know I can find them at my Whole Foods, um, but there's, you know, I'm sure they're coming into. Yeah, I love Fadi. And we actually have got a supplier here in Australia who's brought the products across, and I know that it's available in the U.K. as well. So it's incredible. 
Mm. Oh, cool. Awesome. It's so good to hear that there are more options because even if you are on this for a short period of time, or you might find out that garlic and onions are something that just don't work, you know, at a certain amount and you want to reduce those, it's really nice to have those options. So you can still, you can still enjoy all of your meals, you know, while still also feeling good because that is, absolutely, it's so huge. <laughs> So I would love to talk and kind of dig a little into bloating um, because I think this is a really common complaint from people with digestive issues. And similar to just talking about IBS, I would love if you can talk about maybe some of the causes of bloating and then also what is normal, like what is a normal amount of bloating and what isn't and what might signal something, a deeper digestive issue. Absolutely. So bloating, like you said, is a really normal part of digestion. We, our bodies produce a bit of wind from just simply digesting food. So there is a certain amount or level that is acceptable. And then when it starts becoming a lot, well, your stomach, if it starts becoming more distended and you're looking like you're four to six months pregnant, and it's actually then causing you pain or leading to other disturbances, like, you know, if you have altered bowel habits with diarrhea constipation that's when it's not a good sign so we really want to take into consideration the context of when it's happening and if it's normal or not so one of the things that we know that can cause bloating is having a lot of fizzy drinks in your diet so that's carbonation so looking at soft drinks or even just champagne you know something that's fizzy like that can lead to more gas in our tummy and then our stomach will naturally bulge out. So that's something to consider and also looking at your meal portion sizes. So for a lot of us, when we have a big meal, so think about those Christmas dinners that you've been to, right? You've had too much to eat, a little bit too much more than what you like and then having that extra dessert and you do feel a lot more full and your tummy will then become quite distended and you feel like you have to unbuckle your belt to get comfortable and that can be quite normal as long as it's not happening every single day after every single meal. So that's what we need to think about in terms of contact. Yeah. So I would love to also kind of, um, dig in a little bit because I know that you are a mom yourself. Um, and as a qualified pediatric dietitian as well, which I think is so cool. I want to ask for fellow moms, especially because I was the kid who had digestive issues. I was a little bit older. I wasn't like a six-year-old. I was probably 11 or 12 when my digestive issues started to start. But what if our kiddos are complaining of having tummy issues or, you know, having, you know, bloating or, you know, I mean, it's so hard sometimes for kids to even express what's going on, but if they express a tummy ache, obviously we're not in their body, but when do we know as moms or, you know, as parents, the right time is to step in and get help for our kiddos? Mm. And I think as moms, you know, our gut instinct's really strong. And that's what I believe in, you know, being a mom. So when you sense that something's not going right and your kiddo is complaining about tummy pain and the stomach's looking quite distended and they haven't opened their bowel, say, for a few days, hadn't done a poop, then that's when I'll start getting worried. And, you know, depending on how often it's happening, if they're getting constipation really frequently and they're only, let's say, opening their and doing a bowel movements twice a week and they're straining in the toilet and they're complaining of a lot of pain and it's then causing them to miss school and miss their after school activities. That's when I'll start thinking about what is happening. Do I need to get my child to the doctor and get them to examine the tummy and look at what's going on? Um, not to scare anyone, but I have seen IBS present in younger children as well. But the most, most common thing that I see is constipation because with constipation, they end up with bloating. So that's a really common problem for a lot of children. Um, even for my daughter, she's gone through stages of constipation, but we know that as long as we can get enough fiber into her, she's drinking enough fluids and we're getting her to develop that routine with the toileting. So going to sit in the toilet every day after breakfast, then if we can get her bowels to be regular and that's fine. But if it starts becoming a little bit more concerning and you just feel like something's not right, it's best if you take them to the doctor or to the pediatrician and then the doctors can do the right test to decide if it needs to be investigated further. 
Mm, yeah, so helpful. I know my kiddos have, you know, intermittently also struggled with some, you know, constipation type issues, which I think is really common in young kids who oftentimes mm-hmm. forget to drink water, even though we give them their water bottles and sometimes they don't drink enough water. You know, they go through phases with food and sometimes, you know, they're, they're not eating a lot of those really great fiber rich foods we want them to eat and totally normal, but it can definitely pop up. But, you know, as someone who has struggled with digestive issues, I'm a little bit more sensitive to like, oh no, I hope there's not something, you know, going on. Um, I'm wondering if there are any kind of like best practices when it comes to digestive health for both us as adults and then also maybe for our kiddos, things that we might want to include to support healthy digestion, whether or not we have IBS um, or, you know, consistent bloating or other digestive issues like that. Absolutely. So the core thing is having a wide variety of foods in our diet, because, you know, when you have a variety of foods, have 20 or 30 types of vegetables a week, you're getting in good fiber from, you know, all the different fruits and vegetables. And that's really important to support our gut microbiome. And that's one of the main reasons why we don't want someone to stay off the, stay on the low FODMAP diet for too long, because then you're cutting out those fermentable fibers or vegetables that are really important for our gut health as well because our gut microbiomes do really need that love they need the fiber they need a variety of nutrients for our body to function very well and so yeah we want to keep to having a variety of foods in our diet you want to eat regular meals so not skipping meals or not having you know big portion meals so having three regular meals a day with one or two little snacks in between is really important so you get in all the nutrients that you need and um, one of the issues I suppose that I want to raise is that I have seen clients who do like grazing throughout the day so especially mums you know some of us are really busy so we tend to just grab food as we go we eat on the go we eat while we're driving to work and with that that can create problems with our digestion I suppose because you're always brushed and you're not really sitting down mindfully enjoying your meal and that can sometimes impact on digestion and causes to feel more bloated so being present and really enjoying what we're eating is super important and then the other thing to think about is reducing gut irritants or things that can cause irritation to our gut. So examples of what they might be would be alcohol, drinking too much caffeine, or even sometimes spicy food or fatty foods can be a problem for people as well. So I know for myself, I can't tolerate a lot of spicy foods or fatty foods because that will send me to the toilet really quickly. So it's being aware of what those things are and minimizing that, but at the same time, making sure that we're not having things that can harm our gut. Yeah, so good. Oh my gosh, I love that like 20, 30 different types of vegetables a week. I mean, as someone who loves nutrition and loves food, I'm like, that's still a lot of different types of vegetables each week. But it is it is such a good reminder that variety is so important and getting that really good fiber for our gut health is really important. And, you know, bringing that back into, you know, it's low FODMAP, not no FODMAP. And, you know, it's not forever. So we can still get in a lot of those nutrient dense foods. Mm-hmm. I know I'm one of my goals as a mom is always just to, you know, as in terms of food, always just to keep introducing my kids to more new and different types of foods. My six-year-old is so into pretty much all types of food. She's my little sous chef in the kitchen. She loves helping me out. She loves trying new things. She loves so many different types of vegetables, cooked vegetables, raw vegetables. And then my two-year-old who I'm like, just hoping it gets easier as time goes on is into like peas. And that's about it. And I just keep introducing, she'll eat some fruit too. So she'll eat um, a variety of different fruit, but her new thing is, ew, gross. And I'm like, oh yeah. my goodness. And I try to, it's we try so to not push when, it. Yeah. And it's so hard when they find the voice to say no, and they know that they can assert and say no to what they don't want to. But you know, it ha- it's so common as working with parents, I've seen that happen a lot, but persistence really pays off. And what we do as parents is that we want to create those opportunities to offer our kids a range of food and introduce them to different tastes, different textures, so that it 
it becomes easier over time, you know, once they become exposed to it on a regular basis and they start having fun in the kitchen, like what you're doing with your six-year-old, that's amazing. And just getting them to have fun cooking with you and understanding where food comes from and how food is prepared, how things come together into a dish. And that's such an important learning experience for our kiddos that they really enjoy eating what they create in the kitchen. Yeah, it's all about the experience and they're going to grow up having those fun memories of cooking with mommy in the kitchen as well. Yeah, definitely. I know that, you know, my six-year-old gets so much more excited when she has actually helped to make yes. food. <laughs> and she has, we have one thing that is, her name is Sage and that is Sage's thing. She loves making guacamole. And if we have any sort of, you know, tacos or, you know, we'll, we'll do like nachos or quesadillas or something like that, she has to make her guacamole. And that is mommy can't make it anymore. That is her thing. And she's so proud and she eats most of it, but we can't get mad. She's eating <laughs> guacamole, oh, she's avocado and lime juice. <laughs> she's and got a very fine taste. <laughs> she <does>. Yeah. <laughs> And it's it's delicious too. She does a great job. And so it is so fun to see them getting um, more excited about food. And I think it is, it's so true that the more that you involve them, the more they get involved with the experience, the more that they're going to want to eat that food and try new things. So I love that. So kind of getting to, starting to wrap up a little bit, I'm sure we could talk so much more about everything from kids to FODMAPs and all those things, but I want to give, you know, the listener an opportunity to go in and find out everything that, that you have going on as well. But I'm wondering if you have any kind of last bits of encouragement for the listener who might be struggling with IBS or just struggling with digestive issues and she's not sure if she has IBS and not, um, and kind of seeking answers. Yeah, I do. I really appreciate you asking that. There's one really important message that I want to share with your listeners for it to come across really strongly is that if you're someone who is experiencing any gut discomfort or any health issues per se, you know, as women, we tend to put up with a lot and moms, we put up with even more and we tend to brush our own issues aside so we can look after our kids and we put our family first. And it's really important that if you're someone going through those problems, Problems, especially gut issues to go to your doctor and seek help and ask questions you know if you're not feeling well find out what's causing the issues and you want to make sure that you're seeing um, getting the right diagnosis as well so you can manage that properly um, it's also really important that we seek the right treatment and I know a lot of us tend to go off and try and do our own thing or we want to do our own research and take the matter into our own hands but sometimes I suppose you know instead of going down a rabbit hole doing research on something and spend hours and hours and potentially implementing the wrong information into your life it's really important to speak to a professional someone who's qualified in the area to get the right advice and support and a lot of us need some guidance into how can we practically implement those information or the dietary changes into our lifestyle as well. So having someone on your team who listens, who, who will listen to you and who will support you and guide you along is so important. So yeah, seek help and um, don't be afraid to ask questions. So if you're not getting any answers, go to someone else, get a second opinion so you get to the bottom of it. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. And I am, you know, kind of a testament myself to actually going and getting help because it, I did try and do things on my own in the beginning and it wasn't until I got somebody to help me really get to the bottom of things that it made such a difference. So thank you for sharing that. And just the encouragement that, you know, we don't have to settle for feeling sick all the time. We can get help and it might take a couple different opinions and a couple different, you know, people to do tests or doctors to do tests and to find out, you know, what's going on, but that there is, there is hope in that. Mm, certainly. So I'm wondering if you can share with my listeners what resources that you have available to help them with their own gut health journey and where they can find you. Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram as IBS Dietitian and on Facebook as well. And if you go ahead and click on the link in my bio, I've got a few free resources to help your listeners if they're at the beginning of this journey and they're just looking at tackling the issues. So I've got an IBS Freedom Workbook, which is a self-guided workbook for someone to work through to identify some steps on how they can get 
in control of the symptoms. I also have a webinar that takes someone through the framework that I use my clients to help them um, see how they can get better and find relief from the gut symptoms as well. I do have a Facebook group called the IBS FODMAP community, and that's a wonderful group that's always expanding every single day. And in there we share um, resources and support. People ask questions and a lot of us talk about the experiences of what's going on in our life living with IBS. So it's a nice community to feel supported and get some help from as well. Mm, awesome. Thank you so much. It really is helpful to have that community, to have those other people to Absolutely. talk to about gut issues <laughs> because I know there's a lot of people in my life who do not want to hear about my poop, but there yes. are other people who <laughs> we can relate with some of these issues. And <laughs> I know it was really helpful for me to find a friend who has had digestive issues and be able to speak really open, openly with her. So I'm so glad that you've created that kind of community. I mean, I don't know if they want to be having poop talk, but you know, <laughs> at least to discuss the digestive <laughs> we issues. We normalize it in the group. So yeah, you're more than welcome go. to share about that. <laughs> normalize poop talk. <laughs> Yes, and also I'm it. sure sharing things like, you know, food and, you know, encouraging one another in that way too, especially if you're, you know, doing something like the low FODMAP diet and you want some suggestions, having a community can be really helpful for that. Yeah, that's right. And I do go live in the group once a fortnight, giving people tips and advice about what they can do, um, appoint them to the right resources and ways they can get more support as well. Yeah. So I do some trainings in the group too. Ah, oh, so, so awesome. I'm sure we're going to have lots of, of new members joining your group after this. So I have three final sort of rapid fire questions, but really you can take as long as you want to answer them. Um, and they're really just because I love food and I love sharing food in a way that is joyful. So my first question is, what is your favorite thing to cook? So I'm a foodie at heart as well. And so it's my daughter. So we love making cookies together. And that's our favorite thing to do. Every Sunday we make cookies together. She loves helping. And um, it's just something that we enjoy doing as a family. It brings me a lot of joy. Oh, so fun. So then what is your favorite thing if you go out to eat or you get takeout um, to order or to have someone cook for you? Okay. Um, this is a non-dietitian answer, right? So <laughs> I'm, I've got a sweet tooth, so I love desserts. And for me, when I go out, I look forward to having that dessert. My favorite dessert is tiramisu. <laughs> oh, that's my husband's favorite. Oh, it's so, so good. Oh my gosh. And we're all about balance around here, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't have it every day. It's only once in a while. And um, yeah, I love pastas and dessert like tiramisu. So that's really my one of my favorite that I always get when I go out. Mm, so good. So my final question, again, sharing food in a way that's joyful and, you know, finding balance in every area of our lives is kind of the mission of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. So what does your beautiful balance mean to you? Oh, so that's a really, really good question. For me, I believe that having a really strong foundation and grounding alive is really important. And I've got three priorities that I always try and make sure that I have some sort of balance in. So for me, it's my family, it's my marriage, and it's my work and my business. So those are my three priorities. And sometimes one area of my life will take over the other, but it's being very aware and having that understanding that some things will have to give and take and always remembering when life gets too busy I still need to take time out for myself and that's how I see kind of all the different areas come and play together and having that balance but for a lot of us moms I think it's so important to take time out for ourselves and looking after ourselves as well because we can't feel our um, can't fill our cup if it's only half full or if it's empty we need to keep filling our own cup and keep looking after ourselves and having those self-care. And for me, Sunday is a self-care Sunday. So that's what I do to make sure that I can start my week on a much happier me and much um, more energetic self. 
Mm, I love that so much. I love the notion of self-care Sunday and taking that time for you. It really is so true that we need to take care of ourselves so we can take care of the other people in our lives um, and our passions and the things that we're so passionate about. So I love that view of balance of having those priorities. And sometimes one thing's going to take precedent over the other, but that's okay because we will, it'll all balance out as long as we have that, that awareness. So absolutely. And we got to be realistic as well, because life gets a little bit out of hand sometimes and as long as we can stay calm and know that um, and put strategies in place to get it back into balance then that's really important. Yeah. And I think that's so true with our health and our digestion too, right? You know, sometimes <laughs> things get a little bit off, but it's all just about bringing that back into balance and, and kind of coming back into that place where we're feeling good. Yes. It's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, Charlene, thank you so much for coming on. So much good information today. I'm sure that there's going to be many listeners who have never even heard of FODMAPs and are going to be blown away and going to, you know, research FODMAPs and look at your group. Um, but I think you also provided a really, a lot of encouragement for the woman who might be struggling with IBS, that there is, there are solutions for her and that we can normalize things. Um, so I'm really, really grateful for your time. It's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast. And it's been great being able to connect with you and your listeners as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. If you loved it, would you take a screenshot and share it with a friend over on Instagram and tag me in it? It helps me so much to know what you love and are taking away from each episode. If you really loved it, would you hop over to iTunes and give me a star rating and review? Every rating and review helps this podcast be seen and heard by more women who need to hear the message of balance and wellness without deprivation. It's the best free gift you could give me. And as a reminder, the information and opinions on this podcast are meant for education and inspiration only and are not to be taken as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with a trusted practitioner before making any changes. Have a beautiful day, friend, and I'll see you in the next episode.